Social security numbers are closely linked to our identities, yet they are surprisingly easy to steal and exploit. Why are these long-held personal identifiers so susceptible to fraud? Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group. I'm here today with Kirk Nara, partner with Wiley Ryan, a D.C.-based law firm that specializes in regulatory and public policy counseling. He also serves on the board of the International Association of Privacy Professionals, a global community of privacy professionals. Kirk, the topic today revolves around social security numbers and their use as the primary personal identifier of U.S. citizens. Now, over the last several months, we've seen a number of cases and incidents come to light that reveal the inherent weaknesses and vulnerabilities of social security numbers. Are these personal identification numbers outdated, and how do they compare from an authentication and security privacy perspective with personal identifiers? being used in other parts of the world? Well, it's an in- interesting set of questions. I mean, we've obviously been struggling l- longer than the last few months. I mean, this is something that goes back, you know, a number of years at this point with how to balance the benefits of a Social Security number because it is still the single best identifier with the risks that go along with it because it is the single best identifier. So I think we've done a couple of things that have been positive. I mean, there are a lot of different laws that have restricted how Social Security numbers can and can't be used. You see a lot less, for example, public use of Social Security numbers. And by public, I mean things like, um, you know, basic, like your health insurance card. Many companies used to have a Social Security number as your member ID on your social on your health insurance card. That's not the case anymore. That's been moved away, um, both by law and by practice. So there's been some positives, but I certainly do agree that it's an inherent weak spot because of how often it is used um, to be the core identifier. I mean, what what companies have been struggling with is to you know, an individual company can create an individual identifier for a particular customer relationship, but, you know, customers or individuals often don't know those numbers or don't remember those numbers or can't use them when they call in to get to get their questions answered, and it's also not something that carries over from company to company. Our society in general is still really struggling with what to replace a Social Security number with, and as of today, there really isn't any good basis for that. So what steps should we be taking in the U.S. to ensure better security of Social Security numbers, i.e. better protection from theft and misuse? Well, I mean, the, the, the incidents that have come up in, uh, you know, in recent years fall into, I don't know, maybe three different categories. I mean, we've had situations that get sort of the most press that have been, you know, large-scale sort of hacker or criminal activity kind of situations where, you know, outsiders break into a computer system, an office, something like that, and take high volumes of social security numbers. There's, you know, there's there's ways to deal with that kind of issue. Um, there's also insider problems at a lot of companies. That's been an increasing issue. And so where, where a company insider who needs to have access to information for certain purposes, but then misuses it. So that's a different set of you know, sort of ways to attack that problem. The third place, which is frankly um, one that's coming up into actual identity theft problems more and more, are are personal situations where, you know, a spouse, an ex-girlfriend, a neighbor, a cousin, a sibling, somebody like that, you know, who has access to a person's information. It might be in their house, it might be some of their records, whatever it is. So we have to look at what companies can do to protect against you know, risks from outsiders. We have to look at what companies can do to police their own workforce. And then you also have to look at what P- 
people can do individually to protect their own information. Um, and, and primarily it goes to better controls, limiting where you have the information, how you use the information, not giving out information unless it's absolutely necessary, um, and being very vigilant about checking your accounts and checking the different reports and information that's available about people's uh, you know, financial practices and financial reports in particular. Now, talking about reports specifically, it's been suggested that perhaps the credit bureaus should play some role or take some responsibility here. What role should credit bureaus and businesses that request a person's credit play in reporting suspected fraud or abuse of Social Security numbers? Well, I mean, I think that those companies are starting to do certainly more than they used to. And again, it's a mixture of both legal requirements and actual practices. I mean, there, are, there have been a number of laws passed in the last few years at both the state and the federal level dealing with the whole issue of identity theft. I mean, identity theft is a problem that goes beyond Social Security numbers, but it's also widely understood that the Social Security number is the single easiest entree into identity theft. And so there are a variety of new provisions that require um, credit bureaus in particular to take certain action when certain kinds of red flags or other kinds of problems are either easily identifiable or are reported to them. You know, the flip side of that is that those credit reports, I mean, I don't, I don't know if uh, people in the audience have ever looked at their own credit report, but there's going to be a lot of information in there. Some of it's clearly going to be wrong. I mean, by uh, when you looked at if, when I looked at my credit report recently, I found various addresses that were wrong. There was usually some reason for it. It might be my parents, it might be a sibling, it might be a roommate that I used to share an address with, and then that roommate moved. So there's a variety of problems that don't mean identity theft, um, but then we start to have issues that could lead to identity theft. So we're starting to do more. We're starting to be more aware. I think we're also getting a little better as a society at fixing some of these problems. When there's a start of a problem with identity theft, we're a little better at stopping it, catching it, and you know, remedying the problems, but we still have a long way to go in that area. Now, one thing that's been suggested is perhaps tying in the use of biometrics with a Social Security number to enhance protection. Now, I know that you serve on the IAPP board. Can you give us some perspective on maybe from an international view, how do we feel about biometrics and then how do we feel about biometrics specifically in the U.S. to help verify a person's identity? Sure. I mean, I, I think the issue with biometrics, uh, you know, similar to a lot of other identifiers, is basically a practicality of use. Um, I mean, what happens with a Social Security theft is somebody gets a Social Security number. Again, it could be a theft. It could be a person that you know, whatever. And let, let's use the most, the most common example, which is they then apply for a credit card using the identifying information of another person. Now, it's great to talk about biometrics, but that just, there's no sort of feasible way to make that work in a regular setting. Um, people go to, uh, you know, Target or Sears or Walmart or whatever, and they want to get uh, a credit card right there that's got 10%, you know, gives them 10% off their purchase that day. I mean, there just isn't any viable means of using biometrics for that. The other premise of bio biometrics is that if you were going to take my thumbprint, for example, or a retina scan or whatever it is, 
all those people around the country and around the globe would have to have access to that information in order to verify it. So it's a nice idea, and there may be certain kinds of situations where it makes sense, but again, right now what we're struggling with is trying to come up with any kind of realistic alternative that's actually viable, that people could actually use, that companies could use, that individual consumers could remember, could think about. So it's, it's a real ongoing challenge that we're seeing. Now, I'm going to switch gears a bit and actually point to a recent case that came to light. Actually, this ruling was passed down October 25th. The Colorado Supreme Court overruled a lower court's decision to convict a man of criminal impersonation when he fraudulently used another person's Social Security number when applying for a car loan. Now, while the lower court found that the man defrauded the car dealership on his loan application, the Supreme Court held that since he used his own name, his own birth date, and his own address that was not criminal impersonation, even though he used someone else's Social Security number. Now, how do you view the court's ruling, and what kind of precedent do you think the ruling will set for the future of ID theft cases involving Social Security numbers? Sure. I mean, we, we've had a lot of laws passed in the last, you know, two, three, four, five years that have tried to address specific practices in connection with identity theft. And we've seen you know, sort of a perfect storm of legislators and regulators at the state and federal level all trying to, you know, address this problem by throwing a lot of new laws into place. And what we're seeing in some situations is that the the, the laws don't precisely fit exactly the particular situation. I don't know a lot of the details of this Colorado case. It sounds, however, like it's a it's a slightly different situation than we usually think of with identity theft. It doesn't sound like another consumer was necessarily the subject or the victim of identity theft. My guess in what happened in this case is that what we had is we didn't have a precise match between the action and the crime that was on the books or the crime that was prosecuted in that case. I do think we're seeing a lot of effective criminal prosecutions related to real identity theft. We're seeing uh, a flexibility in the legislators to make sure that they revise laws to make sure they're broad enough. I think we're going to continue to see these laws sort of work their way through the system over the next few years. It's clearly a problem that we're both trying to address and not yet done addressing. So I'm not too worried about an individual case. I mean, it's obviously, it sounds like a bad situation. It sounds like somebody who is trying to behave badly got away with something. But uh, again, in terms of broader precedent, I think that for the most part, we're finding ways to get at um, most of these situations. Again, the real problem with identity theft is not a lack of ability to go after the wrongdoer. Uh, it's finding the wrongdoer, and even more importantly, it's fixing the problems of the identity theft victim. And so that's, a, you know, that's where the real challenge remains uh, going forward. Now, Kirk, what do you deem to be the top three vulnerabilities related to the way Social Security numbers are used and housed? Wow, top. I think that we've got again. I'll go back to my to my uh, list before of sort of the ways in which these these numbers can get attacked. I think that there are real issues in companies on a wide range of you know wide range of industries uh, having problems with insider access. We have. We have situations where, uh, you know, customer service people, the people that are at the end of the telephone call when you call in with questions, people that 
that fill out applications, those kinds of things. In order to do their job, they need access to lots of information, but we're seeing more and more cases where that, inf that, that access is being abused. So one vulnerability is insider access, people needing access to information to do their jobs, but then misusing it in a way that can lead to actual harm. Um, I think that people don't often take good care of their own information. You know, they leave it lying around. They, they carry their cards with them, and then they leave their wallet somewhere. They don't, you know, they throw away trash in a way that doesn't shred information, things like that. So I think that people don't do a good job necessarily of protecting their own information, particularly because we've seen so many cases where the person who commits the identity theft is somebody that's known to the to the individual. So that's certainly another one. At a broader level, we do continue to see large-scale, you know, criminal activity which which are, involves hacking and things like that in the system. So companies also need to do a better job um, of just policing their overall network security. Although again, I think many companies are in fact doing a pretty good job of that. Certainly much more than many more than we had four or five years ago. But there's also a long way to go on that. And in closing, what advice can you provide to the financial, government, and healthcare industries in the U.S. as it relates to better protection and verification of Social Security numbers? I think the major advice I would give is to, you know, is to recognize that while there may still be certain situations in which the use of a Social Security number is needed, it's really not very substantial. There aren't many situations where you absolutely have to rely on a social security number. So one of the things that I tell all the companies that I work with and I think is really a very valuable step is to go into your company and do a real thorough, I don't know if you want to call it an audit or a review or assessment, but go into your company and look at every single place in your company where you collect social security numbers, you store social security numbers, you, you use social security numbers, you disclose social security numbers. And when I've done those kinds of surveys with companies, I have yet to find a, a company that couldn't look at you know, 50% or more of those places and say there's really no reason for this. It's just history. It's accident. It's things we haven't changed that we don't need to. So go through that survey. You want to reduce access as, as much as possible. You want to uh, reduce the number of people that see that information. You want to reduce the places where Social Security numbers are available and to whom they're available and for what purpose. So doing that kind of a survey, I think, can really do a very significant job of Reducing, not eliminating, but reducing these problems because it, it, it cuts down so many of the places where this information just simply doesn't need to be. And again, the, the reason it's there is just history or accident or no one's thought about it recently. Um, but doing that kind of proactive effort is really a very important part of reducing this overall risk. Sure. Kirk, I want to thank you again for your time today. Thank you very much. Happy to do it. Again, we've just heard from Kirk Nara, a partner with Wiley Ryan and a member of the IAPP board. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitten.